0: all who here this morning is tired just raise your hand youth some people in the back as well i am tired this morning but for a good reason i got to go to the i am retreat the last couple of days and see god as keith said do a lot of amazing things and so i am tired along with you guys but i am praying for god's strength this morning for myself and for you as well this is going to be kind of just an in-between sermon, standalone sermon. We're we're in between series this morning. Um, we'll be looking at uh, the Christmas series coming next week, um, and then we had Communion Sunday last week. So we're in between a little bit here. And I just want to tell you a story about myself. When I was young, I uh, I attended a church with my family that was it was much smaller than Fairlawn, and every Sunday morning they would call all the kids up before they went to their Sunday school class for the sermon, and they would have them stand up here at the altar, and they would raise out their right hand, and they would sing a blessing over the kids. Uh, I really actually enjoyed this. It was kind of strange sometimes to stand up in front of the church, but it was something that was unique and, and cool, and they actually still do it to this day. I was there a couple weeks ago and, and got to do it to to the kids up there. And My parents and my family sat in the back left, and, and like I said, it wasn't a big church, but One Sunday morning, I particularly remember this, and I think probably the whole church still remembers this. If you're a good kid and you get called up to the front to get blessed, what do you do? You run, right? You don't just walk. Your parents always tell you to walk in church, but you run. And so I, being a good kid, ran from the back of the church to the front. And I was about five, six, seven feet out, Uh, from the altar, and I was just at a full dead sprint, and as I got that close, I I tripped and just kind of did a superman. It it was like I was a baseball player sliding into home base. I think I got rug burns on my face, Um, but nevertheless, I stood up and was blessed. The whole church was laughing. Uh, I was pretty young at the time, but that was pretty humbling for me. I was pretty, a pretty humiliating thing to have the whole church laughing at you. Um, and the reason I tell you guys that story is because this morning we're going to be talking about humility. A Humility that is much more significant than what I faced, a, a willing humility, not an incidental one. Uh, we'll be looking at the humility of Christ. And so let, let me pray for us that we might have humble minds and accept the word of God this morning. Father, I thank you that you are good, and that you are holy, and that you sent your Son. I pray, Lord, that as we look at humility in the book of Philippians, as we look at the humility that the Son went through, I pray, Lord, that you would humble our hearts and humble our minds, that we might accept what you are saying to us this morning, that your word would become real to us, that your Spirit would move among us. I ask this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. I want to give you a little introduction to the book of Philippians since we're jumping into the second chapter. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 in chapter 2. Just to give you a little background, Philippians was one of Paul's prison epistles. It was written while he was in prison, and uh, he wrote it for multiple reasons. One that we see in in Philippians is that they, they had sent him a gift when he was in prison, and he was... He was writing to thank them for that. But the reason that we'll be looking at this morning is is one of unity. Now, Philippians is a very warm letter. It's very encouraging. Paul writing as a father to his children at the church of Philippi, it has that feel to it. There's no strong rebukes, but everything is said in love and in kindness. And so we get the feeling from that, that this area of unity that Paul's addressing is not something that's super prevalent in the church. It seems to be more something that's just kind of creeping its ugly head up, and Paul is seeking to nip it in the bud, as we would like to say. He's just kind of saying, check check yourselves here, guys. I, I see this happening. I hear of this happening. I want you guys to be united. I want you to have unity. And so, before we look at our text, uh, look at verse uh, chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says this, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of what of you that you are standing firm in one spirit and with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I bring this up to give us a little bit of context for our passage. Paul's talking about the life lived worthy of the gospel. And He's calling them to be of one mind in the Gospel. Look at your bulletin with me. There's an insert in there that that outlines the sermon this morning. Paul will first encourage or exhort the Philippians to unity through humble living in verses 1-4. through And then he'll give them an example of God incarnate as motivation. And then he'll tell us what our response to that example should be, which is worship, the action of humility. And I want to point out, I think it's important to notice the structure of this passage, and you might be like, okay, I'm I'm getting, this is, I'm I'm snoozing over here, talking about structure and whatnot. Those of you who are in my biblical interpretation class should know that structure is important. And so what Paul usually does is he'll say, God has done something amazing, or God is holy, And then he'll say, therefore, live in this way. But if you'll notice, he actually switches that in this passage. He actually says, live in this way. And then he gives the example of Christ. And then he says who God is. And I think that's significant. I think he does that for a reason. I think in many ways, Paul wants us to kind of take our eyes off of ourselves. And focus on Christ and what he has done. And so that's the way I'll treat the text this morning. My, my main point is to encourage you guys, as Paul does here. But even more than that, I just want to set Christ before you. I just want to show you how beautiful and how glorious he is. And that we might come away with this with humility and a heart full of worship for him. I really like it when uh, we stand for the reading of God's word. So if you guys would do that with me. Philippians 2, I'll be starting in verse 1 and going through verse 11. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. On a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. So, as we begin, Paul begins by encouraging. Or exhorting the Philippian church to unity through humble living. Now Paul says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's not questioning whether these things have actually happened. But he's more so saying since, since you have experienced encouragement in Christ. Since you have experienced comfort from his love, since you have experienced participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy, he's pointing the Philippians to their experience of Christ. And here he's defining what the worthy life looks like. He's saying it looks like encouragement, it looks like love, participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. This is how Paul is defining the worthy life for us. He says in verse two, as he continues, complete my joy in affectionate term by being of the same, by having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. Paul's encouragement changes a little bit here. He takes it to a a, a mental state. He says he encourages them to be of one mind. Uh, Let me get a feeling for the families here in the crowd. I don't know a lot of you that well. Um, I'll tell you about my family. I want to see if this, uh, is what your family is like. When me and my family get together, there's six of us, seven of us, I don't even know right now. Um, we get together and if we share a meal, we like to have discussions, we'll say. Uh, they, they seem more like arguments from people on the outside, but we like to discuss a lot of things and it really is, uh, kind of looks like a screaming party at the at the dinner table you know you have 10 conversations going on one person is yelling at the other person it's all the way on the other side of the table they're disagreeing with each other it's just conversations everywhere it's it's very intense very heated has anybody ever seen my big fat greek wedding picture that okay is your family like that don't be afraid to raise your hand one, two, three. Oh, okay, good, good. I'm not the only one. One thing becomes clear for those of you who have families like that, and for me and my family, it's very rare that we agree on much of anything. It's very rare that we're of one mind in very many things. But what Paul, What is Paul calling the Philippians to here? He's calling them to one mind, but one mind in what? In everything? In every area? No, not in every area. Remember what we read in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 21. He says, standing side by side in the faith of the gospel. He said, I want you to be of one mind in the gospel. So we ought to know who Jesus is and know what he has done and be in agreement with each other on that. We ought to be of one mind in the gospel. Not in every area, but in the gospel. Now Paul continues on and he he defines for us the heart of the life lived worthy of the gospel. He goes on and says in verse 3: Do nothing from rivalry, selfish ambition, or conceit, pride, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others so the mind of unity the mind that Christ or that Paul wants us to have is a mind of humility that's the heart of living a life worthy of the gospel we have to have a mind of humility and i hope that you can see how that ties into being united isn't it when we chase after selfish ambition when we're prideful, when we want our own way, that disunity occurs, that disunity happens? What would our church look like if we weren't united in the gospel? What would our families look like if we weren't united in the gospel? I don't think there would be much unity there if we didn't have humility of mind and submitting ourselves to that. So humility is the key here. Humility is the heart. And Paul says that humility is three things. It's counting others more significant than yourselves in your mind. That's really hard to do because we can't really gauge each other on what we're thinking, right? You can't really call somebody out for what they're thinking because you don't know what they're thinking. So we're kind of left to uh, manage our minds on our own. And keep ourselves accountable there. But Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves in your mind, which will lead to action. He says, secondly, that humility is not acting out of rivalry, selfish ambition, or conceit pride. Not going your own way. And third, it's looking not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So not don't consider yourselves at all, But as you consider yourselves, consider also one another. I've been very convicted of this lately. Uh, Humility is something I struggle to practice. Um, My wife and I have not a newborn, but he's about 10 weeks old now, as some of you know. And one thing that becomes clear when you become a parent is that you're really sinful and you're really wicked and, and I'm beginning to, to realize that even more. One of the ways this kind of fleshed itself out for me is early on Ezra didn't know what was day and what was night and what he was supposed to be doing during the day was be awake and what he's supposed to be doing at night was sleeping right like normal people do. So as a result it, It led to many sleepless nights for Abby and I, more for Abby than for I, and I would be holding him at three in the morning, and he's crying, and he's screaming in my ear, and I'm tired already, I got to get up, I got to go to work at six, I mean, I got to get up in three hours, you're tired, I'm tired, Abby's tired, we're all tired, we should all be sleeping right now, rather than seeking to comfort him and seeking to consider his interests as more significant, more important than my own, I just began to become frustrated with him. I began to become frustrated and just like, why won't you go to sleep? I became, I became short, and it was clear that I was considering myself more important than, than my son. And one thing that became clear is that that caused disunity. Disunity. In my family. That caused disunity between Abby and I. When my pride and my selfish ambition and the things that I wanted got in the way of care for our son, disunity happened. So, the life that Paul is calling us to, the life that we're to strive to have, the life that is worthy of the gospel is a life that is marked by humility of mind, which will produce unity. Now, Paul doesn't just leave us with this encouragement. He doesn't just say, all right, you know what it is now, now go do it. But he actually grounds it, he roots it, he gives us the motivation to do it by turning to an example of God, telling us who he is. Uh, to, uh, To our second point, to God incarnate. I love that term incarnate. I looked it up in the dictionary, and a synonym for it is in the flesh. God in the flesh. This is the example that Paul gives us. And so he says this in verse 5. Have this mind, he continues the theme of mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now in my footnotes it says, or which was also in Christ Jesus. So what Paul is actually giving us is he's actually showing us a picture. He's showing us a reality of the mind of Christ. Think about how amazing that is. We don't get a picture like this very often in Scripture. So what does he say? He says, Who though Christ was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What does it mean that Jesus was in the form of God. There's some really tough clauses here, and I'm going to take them kind of one at a time. What does it mean that he was in the form of God? Youth. uh, Can you tell me here, we've been talking uh, the last couple days about the Trinity, right? So how did Jesus exist in eternity past? He existed as not the Father, not the Spirit, but the Son. All right, so in eternity past, Jesus existed as the Son, And so he was in spiritual form, but Paul also says that he was equal with God. The son did not grasp on to that equality, however. He was in the form of God. He was equal with God. He was in perfect communion, perfect holiness, didn't have to deal with the effects or consequences of a sinful world, which we live in living in complete perfection, but yet he says, I'm not going to grasp onto this. But in humility, I'm going to count others more significant than myself, us, and I'm going to what? The next clause he says, make myself nothing, but made himself nothing. What does it look like that the son made himself Nothing. Well, if we think about it in terms of the incarnation, it looks like you, and it looks like me. The Son took on flesh, making himself nothing. Some translations say he became of no repute, or he um, emptied himself. I think they're all getting at the same thing. Paul is showing us the vast difference between God and us. How exalted the Son was, and how lowly we are. That's important here because the Son is humbling Himself, right? So He makes Himself nothing, taking the likeness of man, looking like us. But that's not the only thing He does. Paul also says that He takes the form of a servant. In Mark 10, 45, Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, Himself, Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve. Now, he not only takes the form of a servant, but He also takes the action of a servant. You can flip over if you'd like to John 13. I'll just be there for a second. The setting here is uh, the, the dinner, the last supper before Jesus would be crucified. He's up in the upper room with His disciples. And then this is what it says in 13, verse 4. He, that being Jesus, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he began to pour water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And down to verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So the Son takes on flesh, Jesus, looking like us, but not only looking like us, but becoming our servant. He humbles himself willingly by becoming the servant of man. But it doesn't end there. It continues on. Paul says, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Jesus now humbles himself through obedience to the Father's will and goes and dies, a sacrificial death for us. Do you see the movement of the text? from exalted to lowly to lower. It's moving downward. But not even a sacrificial death was low enough. Paul says this, even death on a cross. Why do you suppose that Paul places emphasis on the cross here? Why couldn't he have just said, humbled himself to the point of death. Consider what Jack Mueller in his commentary on Philippians says. He says this, From the manger to the cross, Jesus trod a path of humiliation which culminated in the misery and suffering and reproach of a shameful death on a tree. The profoundest degree of humiliation was reached in that his death was not to be a natural or honorable one, but was the painful and accursed death of the cross. Paul emphasizes the cross here because at that time, death by crucifixion was not only the most excruciating way to die, but it was the most shameful and humiliating way to die. This is the profoundest degree of humiliation Which anyone has ever gone to. So let me get this straight. God the Son, dwelling in perfect holiness, perfect communion with God the Spirit and God the Father, he has it all. He says, I'm not going to grasp onto this. I'm going to make myself nothing, counting the interests of others more significant than myself. I'm going to make myself nothing by taking the form of man. But not only am I going to take the form of man, I'm going to become man's servant, but that's not enough. I'm going to die a sacrificial death in their place. But it's not going to be an honorable one. It's going to be a death reserved for the lowest of the low in society. How beautiful a picture of the Savior do we have. How amazing is this? And I'd just like to say, this isn't a bedtime story, guys. This isn't a fairy tale. This is reality. This really happened. So at this picture of a humble king, what ought we to do? What should our response to this be? Paul firstly records God's response. He says this in verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So God raises Jesus from the dead. Jesus ascends back to glory, his rightful place. God gives him a name above any other name. Paul continues, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Our bodies, our souls, our entire being should be one of falling prostrate before the glory of God, before the humility of Christ, before the risen Lord. This is a humble posture which we ought to have. But not only ought to we have a humble posture about ourselves, the song that should be on our tongues should be that of Lordship, of Christ's Lordship over us. Paul says, in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Remember that youth? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reality is, church, that we will, it's only when we understand the depths of humility that Christ dove to that we will be willing to have the same mind that he did, a mind of humility, which will produce unity in our families and in the church. So what has Paul said? He said, this is what I want you to do. This is a life lived worthy of the gospel. The heart of it is a mind of humility. So he's told us what we ought to do. He's told us why we ought to do it by giving us the example of Christ, of Jesus, of God incarnate. So he's given us the motivation. And then he's told us how we ought to respond to what we've seen. But yet he hasn't told us one really important thing. How do we cultivate a mind of humility? How do we obtain a mind of humility? Now, I think that Philippians 4, if you'll flip over there with me, in conclusion, verse 8, is application enough for us. How do we cultivate a mind of humility? Hear what Paul has to say. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. Church, the reality is that the humiliation of Christ is true. That the humility of Jesus is honorable, it is just, it is pure, it is lovely, it is commendable, it is excellent. Most of all, it is worthy of praise. Think about these things. Stand with me. Father, I pray that our lives would be in submission to the Lordship of the Son. That you would remove the pride that dwells deep within us, the selfish ambition of wanting to go our own way, and that we would humbly worship and serve you as King. Lord, help us to dwell on your humiliation what you willingly went through, that we might have the same mind and act in the same way. We love you, Lord, and we ask that you would make this real in our lives. I pray this all in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.